Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I think the theme for today's show is uh, threats to democracy and what the world can or should do about it. Because we got we got the coup in Myanmar uh, and what options that the Biden administration has or does not have to to respond to it. We will talk about the sentencing of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Uh, there's a major attack on abortion rights in Poland. We'll get into uh, President Biden's decision to pause arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and then some actually some interesting and notable reforms made in Saudi Arabia, uh, and then Israel's vaccination effort. But it does feel like uh, you know democracy is being tested in a lot of yeah. ways right now. Maybe shortly after our own was tested. Yeah. No. There's a common theme here, <laughs> common thread. Yeah. It's, um, you know, not ideal, but good. We'll, we'll, we'll fight through it. And then our guest today is uh, Terrell Jermaine Starr, the host of Black Diplomats. It's a great podcast. He's also a senior reporter at The Root. You guys just talked. Can you give us a preview of what folks will hear in the interview? Yeah, I really wanted to just, you know, Terrell's doing some really interesting stuff at Black Diplomats. And I wanted him to explain kind of the, the worldview that infuses what he does, which is that you need to structurally take on the lack of diversity and representation in foreign policy and media, but but not just about you know getting people in jobs, changing the mindset. Uh, what happens if if we deal with white supremacy across the board, including in our foreign policy? How would that lead to different outcomes? How would that lead to America, you know, not just showing a different face, but acting differently at home and in the world? So Terrell really takes us into that. It's a cool interview. <laughs> I'm really glad now to be joined by Terrell Germain Starr, who's a senior reporter at The Root and the host of Black Diplomats podcast. Uh, Terrell, thanks so much for, for joining us on the show here. Hey, thank you very much. I've, um, interestingly enough, wanted to be a guest. Oh, good, good. Well, I'm glad we made it happen. Um, yeah. And, and look, I wanted, I wanted to you know, just kick it off uh, by just you know, naming something that we don't talk about enough, which is, um, you know, I spent eight years in the White House NSC meetings, principal committee meetings, deputy committee meetings, and you look around the room um, and it's almost always largely white faces. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I'd looked around the room and the only black or brown face in the room was President Obama. Um, and and <laughs> right, yeah. I want to, yeah, you know, I mean, he was the boss, but still. And so I want to explore kind of the, what, why that is and what we can do about it, but also importantly, like what what kind of policy outcomes that leads to. Um, so, so just for starters, I mean, as someone who's explored this and everybody should check out your podcast, um, how would you describe this problem? Why is it that foreign policy in particular, more so probably than just about any other policy area in the United States, despite you know real gains, Lloyd Austin, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, why is it that uh, this has been you know such a difficult endeavor to promote meaningful diversity in the, in the workforce? And then we can get into what that means for, for outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about national security, I, you really should be thinking about what makes people feel safe. And so when you think about what makes people feel safe, uh, when you, particularly with people of color, we think about our we don't think about the world per se. We think about what's going on in our communities. We think about what's happening um, with our, you know, with food, being able to put uh, food on the table, thinking about our next job. And so when you think, so the first of all, first of all, when you think about national security, it's this perceived as this faraway thing that we don't have a grasp for. And I'm saying this as a, a black man who grew up in inner city Detroit, whose world I just could not see beyond Detroit until I went to school and started traveling. And 
you also have to think about where are the gateways into this field. And so normally the gateways are foreign service. It is some form of government work. And you normally have to know someone who helps you to kind of get be in the know. It's normally the think tank communities. And I could speak from my experience in that I found that culturally these places are very difficult to navigate, uh, you know, particularly um, if you're, you're they're just in the comfort of having a conversation about security. For example, uh, if you're thinking about Iran, right, you know, think about the fact that my, my number one observation about Iran, for example, is that I don't think that a lot of us legitimately give Tehran the the grace of feeling threatened, right? You know, like the basic stuff like, you know, they are Persians, they're not Arabs, for example. And I'm bringing all this up to say that I think that we spend so much time thinking about foreign policy and the concept of military and thinking about it in the terms of neoliberalism that a lot of people of color who would be good candidates to fill these roles may not feel comfortable bringing that perspective. And so I think the Black Lives Matter movement has manifested in this country a new bravery and confidence that we're capable of being in these rooms. And we don't have to be a particular type of person in order to fit in. And so we see these um, improvements taking place right now, but you're going to see more as the Black Lives Matter movement emboldens folks to feel like it's okay to infiltrate uh, these spaces. And I know for me, what helped was I had a number of people who told me that, hey, you're talented, Terrell, and you have the capability and your personal experience is important and it's valuable. And I see the world, uh, interestingly enough, through my uncles who sold drugs, you know what I'm saying? And, and, you know, like it's just, yeah. just, just an ir irony thing. I've re actually written about this. And so just feeling safe to say that and being able to flesh that out in an intellectual framework, it makes all the difference in the world. I, I, you know, it's really interesting. And I want to unpack kind of some of the different angles of this. Um, Cause I was always struck uh, again, I'm, I'm just drawing on my experience, right. Which is working for Obama that he had this, this Which different is a big experience. <laughs> it's a big experience, right? But it, he had this, you know, he had this double experience that he brought to that office that, that nobody'd had before. One is he lived in Indonesia um, right after a coup that the CIA sponsored that killed hundreds of thousands of people. So he saw as a kid, like the other side of American power, the, the side that Americans don't like to look at abroad. And then he had an experience as a black man in the United States of recognizing that the authorities, you know, <laughs> sometimes uh, can do things that, right. that make you feel less safe, right? Make you feel less insecure. And I think that, that that led him to kind of think about, you know, some of the negative consequences of things that America might do around the world, you know, militarily and otherwise sanctions in ways that other presidents wouldn't. I, I know I just offered kind of a, a pretty leading question, but the question itself is, if we bring different perspectives, particularly bl black and brown perspectives into the room, uh, how do you do you think that that might lead to different outcomes in terms of, you know, looking at American power through different eyes, uh, considering restraint before we act? Uh, how would that, you know, how would that interface with the issues that, that American foreign policy deals with? Well, for one, I, I think that it's not just about having people of color. It's about having people of color who are interested in challenging the neoliberal construct that is foreign policy. And so. You know, there are plenty of people of color who are fine with things the way that they are, and they're just fine with ascending to the top. Uh, so I think that is about bringing folks in who really 
have a healthier appreciation of deconstructing this 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 economic construct that feeds into our militarism, for example. And so when you when you think about safety, when I talk about safety on my podcast, Black Diplomats, uh, my whole thing is how do I get you engaged in this conversation? Because, you know, the, the same folks, you know, um, Biden, for example, he won a majority of the black vote this go around. And so he's going to be being, making a lot of foreign policy decisions. And a lot of us don't feel like we're engaged and we don't feel like we have the language to have those conversations. And so, first of all, you have to get people language and, and to, to work around. And so what I've found to be most productive is saying, hey, what are some things you connect to? And the number one thing that I've heard are veterans. Right. And because too, so often veterans are are connected to, you know, our armed forces and those are the people who are sent off to fight wars. And we often look, unfortunately, at foreign policy through the lens of military, you know, through the through, through, through the barrel of a gun. And so what is it like to divest from the Pentagon? For example, we saw uh, some more progressive uh, members of Congress are pushing for a 10 percent cut you know, in the Pentagon. And so what can that be divest? What, what can that be reinvested into? Should that be, that should be reinvested into the state department. Right. And so yeah. people who are actually skilled at, at, at diplomacy, and I don't think we spend enough time talking about dive, you know, when we talk about divest to invest, divest from the Pentagon, and we know that they have billions of dollars in waste that could be going to state department officials who are very talented, a state department that was decimated under the Trump administration, let's be you know blunt about that. Um, and, yeah. and so, when you start telling people about things that they can tangibly touch, then they'll start to have an understanding of it because they'll be able to talk to people. You know, they'll be able to talk to their cousins. They'll be able to talk to their children. They'll be able to talk to their parents because the military, you know, for a lot of folks, is a gateway there. Another thing is, you know, I find that uh, you know bringing people of color into these conversations who really have an analysis about these things. Um, it, it, it can also mean that we will have different relationships with uh, people who are deemed adversaries. So you take, for example, with Iran, I brought it up earlier, is that, you know, one thing I respect about Obama in the Iran deal and, and the first step he took with that was he didn't care about the, the grievances. Well, he cared about the, grievance, the regional grievances, but this whole thing was. I do not want Tehran to create a nuclear weapon. That was the that was and, and you know this is being a part of you know national security meetings and things like that. That was like the big grasp of it, and it was working until Trump unraveled it. And so I think that there are a lot of ways in which you know you make a decision about who's an ally and who is the person that you can work with. And Iran is one of those places where okay. We're going to determine that they're the axis of evil, but there are so many people. You can make an argument that Saudi Arabia could be on that axis of evil. It's all about how you perceive things, right? And so the, people make these decisions, and you can reimagine these decisions. It's really that simple. And so I think that people of color and the people who have been on my show have begun reimagining what this, you know, what what it means to be an adversary, what it means to be an enemy of the United States. And I think that we would be able to help to deconstruct this Cold War mentality towards Russia as an area that I'm very keen on. And, you know, there's a way in which we deal with the Kremlin. And I tend to say the Kremlin because I don't like to stigmatize Russians by saying the Russians. So, you know, you, when you look at the Kremlin, you know, there are, we, we need to negotiate them with New Start. We need to negotiate with them in regards to, um, 
you know, when, when you cause, you know, nuclear de, um, non-proliferation, but there's still ways in which we're going to have to be strong, you know, strong and, you know, uh, from a sanctions perspective over Crimea and a number of other things. And so we have that relationship with Russia, right? So why can't we have it with Iran? Why can't we have it with other places? And so a fresh perspective of people of color perspective will also help America look at its own flaws, right? You know, America forever has been this country that says that we are the model for the world. And yeah. I think that when you see people like myself, people, uh, you know, black men and women, people of color who are locked up literally in cages, you know, they will say, wow, you know, this is how America treats its own people. How can it yeah. just sit on a sit on its pedestal and preach to us? And so you're going to have people from these experiences reimagining what safety means. And that's going to have a very different outcome for the ways in which we engage folks who we deem our adversaries because it, it definitely needs to change. Yeah, no, and you make a powerful argument, uh, you know, that, that getting different people in the rooms allows us to look at things differently, allows us to make different priorities on things like defense spending, challenging certain aspects of the neoliberal consensus. There's also, uh, you know, what do you think the opportunity is abroad? Because, you know, I, I think Americans don't fully sometimes appreciate how much our legacy of white supremacy you know, in fact, impacts how people hear us when we talk to them about things like democracy, you know, which has been a feature of American foreign policy. I, and I also noticed the power of showing up in other countries, um, particularly in, you know, increasingly important countries in the global south right. uh, and showing up with not just a Barack Obama, but a Susan Rice, you know, when I was uh, working there, that, 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 that uh, frankly, you're, you're puncturing some of the skepticism people have about American democracy, you know, if we have different representation abroad in the foreign service and in the people who are showing up with the president, you know, what is the opportunity there to kind of reshape how the world looks at America's own flaws uh, and, and, and make us a kind of more credible voice on things like human rights where we seem to have lost all of our credibility? Well, you, you, well, that's a, actually a very good question. In order for American uh, diplomats, people of color who are put into these roles to be representatives of America, we have to have good leadership at home, right? So, it's it's not just enough to appoint, you know, people of color ambassadors to critical areas of the world if we don't have good leadership at home that are actually creating domestic policies. You know, for example, uh, like. What it, you know, uh, you know what it means to stop sending military aid and selling military arms to local police departments. You know, Biden is already taking steps, you know, begun to take steps in that regard. So that's laudable. Um, but this this when you un, it took it has taken hundreds of years to create this white supremacist construct. And it's going to take many more to unravel people's minds around the, around the reality that we don't have to live this way. So, so, so it's, so the representation part is important, but there are some structural things at home, you know, for one, one example is that we saw it in Georgia, just, some, you know, people panned, um, Zelensky, the, the Ukrainian president, you know, where I'm at right now in Ukraine, like the Ukrainian president Zelensky on his Axios interview for saying that, you know, I, you know, I look at America differently. Now on one point, I do respect the fact that because Ukraine is constitutionally limited in regards to its authority and as much and, and much of its power is linked to defense and national security. So maybe it may not have been the most diplomatic thing to say, but on his face, he was not wrong. Right. And so there are plenty of people who are 
a lot more independent who have the capacity to point the finger and they have power and they independent power from us where they don't have to, you know, beg us for support. So I, I think we, you know, just think about the fact that we had J January 6th, a literal attempted coup, right? Yeah. The ways that we talk about other countries, at, uh, Karen Atia at the Washington Post has an incredible series of stories where she says, well, if this were happening in another country, this is how Western media would cover it. And so America still is kind of high on its own, you know, pseudo democracy supply, if you will. And, you know, I think that there needs to be a reality check with ourselves to say that for in many respects, we are our democracies are just as fragile in many respects as a lot of the countries that we like to criticize. And so keep in mind also that you have a Democratic, you have a Republican Party that essentially is functioning as a, a de facto terrorist, a terrorist cell or at, or at minimum a propaganda tool for, you know, larger domestic terror cells in, in the United States. Now, it sounds like hyperbole to people, but it's a real thing. We have a functioning, powerful party that has the capacity to elect presidents that is actively and openly undermining democracy. Think about that. So it's it's one thing to send in diplomats, but the work that activists did in Georgia, you know, it, it's it's just um, it, it's remarkable. And so as much so, so the work that you know Latasha Brown is doing, Stacey Abrams, there are so many other activists around the country who are trying to save, quite frankly, white America from itself. And, and so the uh, diplomats who are deployed across the world are benefiting from that. So the more that we showcase that activism is improving our country and the more that people like President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris and Democrats, because Republicans just don't care, but Democrats embracing the movement that is going to create a stronger foreign policy and a stronger diplomatic core because we're strengthening democracy at home and we're giving diplomats that we're deploying, you know, the proper support and showing them that, yes, we're, we're, we're calling for democracy in your lands, but look at what we're doing at home. And this is the example that we want you to follow. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, some of this is the, the story that's told, too. Right. I mean, the, the media uh, is even less diverse. <laughs> <laughs> than the, the workforce. Uh, and, you know, yeah. you're, you're in the media, you got a podcast, you write, you mentioned Karen Atia, she's great at the post and bringing new voices in. How important is it to change who's telling the story about these issues? I'll tell you, the reason why I started Black Diplomats was because I felt like for a long time I was shut out of national policy conversations. And I didn't feel safe in these spaces because, quite frankly, my perspective is different and I've always been willing to talk to people about how I view things, but I've, you know, there was a point where I almost quit the Russia area studies field roughly about six, seven years ago. And the reason why I almost quit was because it's already tough in the U S press corps. We've had a black lives matter movement. I think, but really, uh, Boyd, uh, black journalists in particular was the 2000, well, not only black journalists, but people of color journalists were the um, uprisings and, and um, you know, in, in Ferguson, right? Yeah. In 2014, the, the untimely, you know, killing of Michael Brown. And so when you saw not only, you know, working journalists, but you saw activists taking over social media platforms and retelling the story, then that gave 
black journalists, people of color journalists in newsrooms more power. So the movement empowered us. Yeah. And I don't know how, and, and we really need to start really giving activists their props, right? I mean, because I know that there's a separation between activists and journalists and everything, but if it wasn't for those activists, newsrooms would be weaker. Black people would, would, would be weaker in our newsrooms if it wasn't for the Black Lives Matter movement. And so that in itself gave me courage to try, right? Because if it wasn't for my, my social media platform, people reached out to me based on how I was tweeting about Ukraine because I didn't need anyone's permission to tweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And so slowly but surely, people started asking me to write. And then I started getting opportunities to speak. And so I started developing the confidence that I can do these things. And, and, and I found black people who said, hey, I study Russian at Georgetown or I study Russian you know, at Ohio State. And so we developed this small group, a camaraderie of black people who are interested in Russia and Central Asia and Eurasia. And so we had similar stories about being shut out, being shut down and being ignored and being insulted by white people and, you know, media in, in, in Eastern Europe and think tanks, etc. And so we developed a union. And so it, it was them who actually encouraged me over the years to get to create a podcast. And I also saw the fact that there are a lot of people of color who left the Obama administration and they had a hard time getting hits on television. And so I said, you know what, let me give you uh, a space. And so I started a, a, kick, a Kickstarter and raised money to get, you know, this equipment that I'm using to talk with you yeah. right now with because it's expensive, you know, and so. I, but but also it I also the the thing about a podcast is that it's very different from appearing on CNN for a, a three minute segment or a five minute segment where you know you're just hitting your talking points. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, you being able to do this work, getting getting on this microphone, and you do it in and talking to somebody for hey the time that we're speaking to, you get to really understand who a person is. You get to flesh out their views and their ideas and their perspectives in a way that you can't do in a succinct soundbite, and so. I gave a platform to mostly people of color, but I, and I haven't had one white man on my show yet. And it's not because I don't like white men. I mean, <laughs> you're cool, Ben, you know, uh, but it's like, I, I just feel like um, we've heard yeah. those perspectives and you can go anywhere for them. And so I'm really proud to say that I'm approaching my 30th episode and everybody that's been on my show has been a person of color and a person of color who has a, a, a mentality about challenging neoliberalism. And so a number of people who are on my show were on my show in the past are now in the Biden Harris administration. That's something yeah. I'm very proud of. And it's something I'm working to build on. And, and I think, and people have told me Terrell, you know, I can't really say this publicly, but I listen to your podcast every week because you say a whole lot of things that I want to see in meetings, but I can't do it. So there are a lot of people in the state department that listen to me. There are people that work across the, the United States federal government, but also folks who felt like they didn't have access to it because they see someone like me, they see somebody with my politics and say, dang, man, you make me feel safe. I can ask questions. I don't want to sound dumb. And so it's nothing like seeing someone like yourself that makes you feel secure and being able to ask the next question. And so Black Diplomats is really about talking about safety and security in a way that we all can understand because safety and security for black folk is an entirely different thing for white folks. And it has nothing to do explicitly with our skin color. It has everything to do with how we walk this earth. 
And so once I bring in policing, I bring in the military, I bring in all these sensory points that people can touch onto, then I give them, I give people a variety of entry points that they could, that they can engage the conversation that they otherwise wouldn't have in a more kind of route or a, uh, a very kind of, um, the word I'm looking for is, um, um, I guess that for lack of a better word, because I can't find it is, you know, like a straight shot type of, uh, uh, approach that says, Hey, this is what Russia is doing. This is what China is doing. And quite frankly, it's like it, it, people can't grasp it because they don't know where to hit at. And so with me, I talk, one of the things I talk about safety and security is I, I spoke with Latasha Brown and she was talking about, um, I talked to her about her activism, but a lot of people don't know. She said, I wanted to be a diplomat. I wanted to be a UN uh, diplomat. And so we spoke about that. And so there are a lot of activists out there who have studied abroad or they speak another language or they may have an immigrant experience. And so they could talk about the perspective of I've come here as an undocumented immigrant and I've gotten, you know, legal status. I've, I've gotten um, I've become documented um, now. But they could talk about safety and security from that perspective. And so those are the voices that I have intentionally sought in is gaining traction. Well, look, uh, you know, we wanted to have you on to kind of, you know, get that sense of, of your mission and, and hopefully uh, encourage some of our listeners to, to check out uh, Black Diplomats. I'd love to have you back on at some point to just talk Russia and Ukraine. Please. Uh, you know. Yeah, of course. I, I'm I'm, re I'm ready for it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a um Non-resident fellow at the Atlantic yeah. Council. Uh, one thing uh, I want to shout out, and I spend a lot of time on these things, and so I'm more than willing to provide that perspective. I, I'm I'm looking forward to it. So please, I'm I'm waiting. Yeah, let's do it. Because um, there's, uh, un, you know, unfortunately, we know that there'll be a lot of twists and turns in those stories in, in the coming weeks and months in Russia and Ukraine. But look, we 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 loved having you, and uh, uh, again, everybody should check out Black Diplomats. Uh, check, follow you on social media, and and hope you. Uh, I'm sure it's a little colder in Ukraine than it is uh, where I am in, in L.A., but uh, I hope you you uh, have some, some yeah. time down there, too. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you so much. That's all we got for today. Thank you to uh, Terrell Jermaine Starr for doing the show. Uh, ben, I'm very excited to buy your book. Thanks, man. Remind me again where I can find that link. Well, you know, uh, you, you can go to Amazon or you can go to your independent bookstore and support your independent bookstore. Or uh, if you go to my uh, Twitter feed, uh, there's also the the uh, Random House, my publisher's link. So there's lots of ways to get it. Um, but I really hope people check it out. Fantastic. I cannot wait. Talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, Narmal Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. <laughs>